0: Welcome to this week's edition of The Vasey View. This is my regular podcast where I explore the links between tech and public policy. And I sometimes go on tour. I go on virtual tours. I've been to France. I've been to Estonia. I've been to Holland. I've been to Israel, looking at how these countries put together their tech policies. And sometimes I take a deep dive into a sector like agritech or cybersecurity. And sometimes I talk to big picture policy thinkers like benedict evans or tony blair or malcolm turnbull well i'm here in london with phil spencer who i'm going to loosely describe as the king of xbox it's one of my very few face-to-face podcasts so we'll see how the chemistry works when we're sitting next to each other it's an incredibly hot day in london and obviously there are lots of reasons i want to talk to phil Uh, One is that he spends more time with my son than I do, by a factor of 10, as in my son is on the Xbox about 8 hours a day, so this is kudos for me. And I also obviously, as the former video games minister, and now still involved in the games industry, want to hear the reflections of the king of Xbox. Not my official title, just so it's clear. (laughs) Phil, first of all, tell us who you are, because you are a Microsoft lifer. I am. I started at
1: Microsoft in 1988 as a programming intern from the University of Washington. Yeah. Those that don't know, it's right across the lake. It was easy to find. I think when I started, there were fewer than 5,000 people at Microsoft, just to give a sense. Yeah. Today, it's, what, 150,000 people or something. So, yeah. And I joined Xbox right after we launched the original Xbox.
0: Which was, what year was that?
1: Uh, 2001 is when we launched the original, I believe. I launched in So you were there at the beginning. I was. and. Uh, we're doing what in 2001? Building games. So I grew up in Xbox building games, uh, which did for a short stint bring me to live in the UK. I lived in London um, as we were growing our development footprint here, acquiring studios, building those studios. And then I moved back to the US and eight years ago became... Not the king, but head of Xbox,
0: (laughs) which is the role I have now. So obviously, I want to take the mickey out of you a bit more because, I mean, this is your first visit to London for three years. Three years. COVID is like, yeah, this is my first international trip
1: since January of of 20. feels good to see humans that I don't normally see all the time. So it's great.
0: And you're aware that the reason you get the best tables in restaurants is because you share the name with a top real estate TV personality. In I, the do. UK. I There's some show that he's on. Yeah. Phil Spencer, <laughs> Undercover Agent. Is that it? Location, location, location. Is that the, yeah. yeah. No one listening to this podcast will have heard of it because we have a <laughs> lot of listeners in the US, but I just thought I'd get that out of the way. But it's good to have you back in London after three years. So talk, just talk I mean, you've got 20 years of Xbox experience. And I would love to just, you just give us a picture, obviously, because, you know, it's Xbox versus PlayStation, of Xbox's journey in the last 20 years. You know, what have you seen? You've had a ringside seat, literally at the changes both in terms of the technology and in terms of the size and the scope of gaming? I mean, this is a very open-ended question. But I'd just love to start with you giving your reflections on that kind of journey in 20 years. Because without wishing to be disparaging, the Xbox of 2001 is like a steam engine compared to yeah. the Xbox of 2021. Yeah, I think there's there's multiple things. There's the Microsoft
1: perspective, and maybe I'll, I'll also comment a bit on the industry. Yeah, From a Microsoft perspective, like many things back in the early 2000s, we entered this category out of a fear, a fear that the home video game console might become the, the PC of the home. Right. And we wanted to make sure we had an entrance into that, and Xbox became that. We didn't really know what we were doing when we put the original Xbox out. Uh, worked with a lot of partners who made a bet on us. Uh, the first generation, which was just called Xbox... Didn't last very long. We pretty quickly moved into what was called the Xbox 360, which was our next um, console. We had come from PC gaming, like the oldest franchise. Maybe I'll ask this question of all the Microsoft franchises out there, not gaming, can be gaming, not gaming, the oldest Microsoft franchise still under development is... Windows. Microsoft Flight Simulator. Flight Simulator predates Windows. So we've been in gaming as Microsoft for an awful long time, and you go back to our PC gaming, Age of Empires, Flight Sim. But with Xbox came this, we're going to build a dedicated device, spend the money to build the hardware, go build a different and expanded creative capability in our studios, and enter the video game category. And I I guess a lot of people were very skeptical. I think certain people still are. But yeah, definitely at the time. If you think back to those days, blue screen of death on Windows, Microsoft, I'd say, was a less mature company itself, Mm -hmm. finding its role of what do we stand for as a company, which is one of the things I'm very proud of, what the company has done under Satya, in taking public stands on things like sustainability, representation, accessibility, and being public about our goals as a company. I think that's us maturing. I'd say as a video game industry, when I think about that time to where we are today, I see an an industry that's kind of learning its place as well. There's 3 billion people on the planet who play video games, nearly half the world's population. And as an industry, if we start thinking about the people our stories can reach, the communities and the discourse that can happen in the gaming communities because of the reach of video games. I mean, think about your son might be playing with somebody who's playing from Mumbai, Yeah. And they could be playing together. And like what other social construct on this planet could put those two people of that age together? And then as an industry, how do we start setting positive social norms as a very diverse player base starts to play together, build together, learn together? We think there's amazing, amazing opportunity. And I like seeing how the industry has evolved into that place, kind of matured in a way, into that place.
0: Yeah, I think it's uh, fascinating. There are so many kind of spin-off questions that, that I want to ask on the back of that, but I want to try and keep some structure. But, you know, $3 billion and it's a $200 billion That's right. industry. And it's bigger than music and film and television. And growing faster. It's, yeah. a, it's the biggest entertainment media right. in the world. And I have this kind of prejudice that I still see. I mean, I'm a big fan of the games industry, although I'm not a gamer. Video games are still the kind of orphan child of when we debate. So when you talk about people engaging on Xbox, we talk all the time about there are 3 billion people on Facebook now, Meta, interacting, but we never talk about 3 billion people playing games together. When we talk about, certainly in the UK, threats to the kind of entertainment ecosystem, the BBC, we talk about Netflix. We don't talk, I'm not saying you're a threat, but we don't talk about the other attention Take? Why do you think games are not kind of more prominent in kind of the public debate about where we're going in terms of tech and entertainment? I think as an
1: industry, we have to take some responsibility for that in terms of us advocating for ourselves and what we mean as an industry and being public about our aspirations. So because I'll I'll then deflect to some, I think, external reasons. But I do think as somebody who has been in the industry for a while. If we don't reflect on that ourselves and say, well, yeah, why not? Why aren't we considered a social medium, yeah. a storytelling medium, a social impact medium? There is that does reflect on us and how we tell our story and how we set our goals. I also think it's generational. Like I think about the stories in, you know, I'm in my mid 50s, but I think about the stories when I was growing up going to the video game arcades playing on my Atari 2600 at home and friends of my mom telling my mom, oh, your your son, Phil's wasting his time playing video games. My mom likes to call up those friends now (laughs) and say it turned out okay. (laughs) But like the idea that you would build a career in video games was like total no. Like it was almost a vice. Yeah, yeah. Right? Like, and... The fact that this industry employs hundreds of thousands of people globally, yeah. the fact that, as, as you talked about, the youth of the planet sees us, this industry, video games, as not only their entertainment mechanism, but their social mechanism, and more and more their creative outlet as they're building content, as they're bu- they're doing Twitch streams and YouTube content, or building Minecraft or Roblox content. And I see it generationally when I meet with government officials it's often the case you can see the line of somebody in the government who's about 35 or 40 who grew up playing versus a government official who's 60 or 70 who this video game thing hit them from the side and they've probably never held a controller. Again, I'll take it as our responsibility to build connection to both of those audiences. But I do see generationally as legislators are growing, are aging into, the gamers are aging into those age groups, that the the discussion becomes more real and more understood and less foreign.
0: Yeah, I won't get into trouble by asking whether you think what Joe Biden thinks of uh, games. But I mean, (laughs) one of the other things you've seen, presumably, in the games industry over over 20 years since Xbox launched is the change in demographics, more women playing, and the change in engagement on mobile. Yeah, absolutely. And
1: I mean, people ask me, what's the average gamer? If you have 3 billion people, your average gamer is the average of the planet, hmm. right? There's no difference. I think about that in terms of our own teams. If our teams don't reflect the customers that we aspire to earn with our product. so what's the makeup of our team? You know, I'm privileged old white guy on the West Coast of the United States. I'm not 3 billion people on this planet. Yeah. My So the creative teams, because the unconscious bias that will come up in how we tell our stories, the way different groups will interpret things that are said and done. So it's critically important that our teams reflect our customers and as, multi- as many perspectives as possible, and that those people on the teams feel safe where they can raise their voice or their concern when they see something, when they hear something. Not only about how we work, but the content that we put out. I mm. think that is important. But you're, you're right. When you think about 3 billion people, your gender, your socioeconomic focus, your racial focus... You have to look at the planet as your customer.
0: But I mean, mobile, for example, has brought more people into gaming. Totally, and, yeah. And has changed the kind of demographic profile of a gamer. It, it
1: has. It's been interesting. Absolutely has. What There are a billion and a half people with mobile phones on the planet. There's also this segment of games called mobile games. What I also find more and more as I travel, one of the role, one of the roles I have at Microsoft is I'm the executive sponsor for African development centers. We have one in Nairobi, one in Lagos. Mobile phones are the dominant device on the continent of Africa. Right. Continent of Africa is 1.2 billion people, average age is 20 on the continent. When I go there and visit gamers, they know what Halo is. They know what Minecraft is. And not because they're playing on the phone, but the phone gives them access to the internet, which gives them access to YouTube, which gives them access to Twitch, which means they see all of this content. They might not have a device today that can play all of that content. So you see PC cafes showing up. And other, but there are also massive mobile games that get built that are targeting um, those players and giving them opportunity. In the end, our view is a game should be a game. Much like if you want to watch Netflix movies on your phone, yeah. and somebody else is watching on their 80-inch OLED television on the screen, you're both consuming the same content. And we think that content should be able to hit any screen that somebody plays on in mobile by definition has to be a big focus.
0: So I'm interested in you, you touched briefly on diversity. So when I was a minister, I focused a lot on diversity, but again, you know, the old cliche, I focused on the film and TV industry because I felt very strongly that people had to see people who looked like themselves on screen and that would open up opportunities and the industry needed to change because it needed to tell different stories to different audiences. But I I never got into the video games industry. So tell me a bit about what you're doing in terms of that. Because presumably, you know, as you're talking and the the three billion figure, which has become a sort of bit of a mantra during this podcast, you know, you're building a game. You've got a game like Minecraft where anyone on the planet can play it and understand it. That's right. So you need this kind of, you need diverse teams. You need people from
1: different backgrounds. That's right. And I I totally believe in, in your focus that if I can see it, I can be it. I have to see me in... In the games, we have a focus. We call it gaming for everyone inside of Xbox. It's one of our kind of internal activities. We're public. It's not a, a secret thing. But, And we think about three legs of the stool of gaming for everyone. One, as we've been talking about, is the makeup of our teams. Do our teams reflect the customers we aspire to earn? And does everybody feel safe and included so they can raise their voice and do their best work? So Team. We also think about the creative in our products. Does everybody see themselves in the games? If I'm playing Minecraft, Hmm. can I create me when I create my avatar? That's from a clothing I want to wear, from a hairstyle, not assuming any specific gender, not assuming any specific race. Not every game makes us because some games are very story-driven and kind of character-driven. But in games where I'm creating myself and my own experience in the game, you should be able to create yourself in the game. So you can also see you represented even down to accessibility options in the avatars that people will create in games. And then you go who should be able to access and play kind of the diversity of play and how we as a company, I often think about it, whatever we are, a $2 trillion market cap company in the video game space. That we should be public about the things we aspire to do from accessibility, sustainability, representation, and set those goals in a public way. We don't always know how we're going to achieve the goals. But like as Microsoft, we talk about doubling the representation of people of color in our senior ranks as a company. We Satya set that goal. We think about sustainability and our carbon footprint and going carbon neutral and even carbon negative to offset any carbon footprint of the company. And Brad Smith set goals around that. And I think that we should be public about the impact of our products. Um, we should stand for things in a public way. And we should aspire to achieve those goals and make our games as accessible to people as possible. That's an accessibility comment, that's a business model comment in terms of price of the content and where the games show up. So, our teams the creative in our games themselves, and our goals and accessibility of
0: the platform. And do you think you do talk about it enough, or do you want to talk about it more, as it were? I don't think we can
1: talk about it too much. I'm conscious of not wanting to turn any individual on the team or any game into a token. Yeah, yeah. That's not that. fair.
0: Yeah.
1: I never talk about, "Oh, this is our accessible game." Yeah. Right? That's the opposite of accessibility. <laughs> yeah. You know, if I think about our leadership team right now, I think we have the best Xbox leadership team we've ever had in the history of, and, and that has nothing to do with me. And I'm also very proud of how that team represents more diversity than it ever has. And I can only look at the opportunity ahead and say, we still have so much work to do
0: um, as a team. So absolutely, I want to talk about it. So look, uh, you're in London, and it's no secret if, if uh, someone like you is coming to London, you'll want to talk to the government. And I, you know, when I was the minister for, I, I was called the minister of the creative industries, but it included video games. And I I went on this journey because I knew nothing about video games. You know, I played them as a kid. I knew nothing about the industry. Yeah. And I discovered... It's an industry that requires people with hard skills, like computer science and yep. physics. It's an industry that also needs the arts. It's an industry that's regional, even within the UK. It was an industry at the time where uh, most politicians thought if you played video games, you became a serial killer. Yeah. And I discovered that, you know, the film industry had this great tax credit and we were leeching talent to Canada because of their tax credit. That's right. But it took me three, four years to convince our finance minister to uh, introduce a UK tax credit. Yeah, Has the UK tax credit made a difference? Absolutely has. It absolutely has. You can stop
1: there. <laughs> I, this morning, I did a developer roundtable. And nobody will see this, but I'll say that room right there. <laughs> and talking to them about why they're here and the impact that UK tax credit absolutely helps build new businesses and support the businesses that are here. It's been great. Yeah. And you and I have never met. Yeah. Uh, this is like we met for the first time today. Yes. I think that's true. Yeah. And your name in supporting the video game industry is is known and it's a positive. And as somebody who's never met you, I'll say thank you. Oh, you can uh, definitely come on this podcast. Too. <laughs> no, but I mean that. Like, you mentioned Canada. I, I think whether you look at the Montreal region, we have a studio there. We have a studio uh, in Vancouver. We have a studio out further east in, in Canada. You can look at states like Texas that are doing this and investing. And how do we grow the interactive capability, interactive media, video game capability in our region. And it absolutely matters, matters here. And, and I would support the government continuing to invest in that. I think it's, it's an important consideration as they want to grow really a strong workforce in this category.
0: And one of the other things we did uh, when we were in government was um, we commissioned this review into kind of industry support uh, for the video games industry and that included skills yeah. and uh, we got coding put on the national curriculum in high schools but i don't know how much difference that has really made in terms of you know who's available to teach coding but getting people with the skills and training them must be one of your biggest challenges the biggest
1: and you mentioned it that video games my point of view sit at a very unique intersection of art and tech yeah and That intersection has its own capability of what does it mean to be a composer for a video game? We have these people on staff um, and they have to understand obviously music creation and composition and the technology of having that actually show up in the game to the people who are actually writing the code that are are, are running the games or running the services behind the games. And us, we do game camps. We do game camps in different regions to try to help. I think gameplay itself, the reason I sit here today is because my father brought home a Pong machine when I was like six years old, and then an Atari 2600, and I just followed that path through a lot of privilege and, and luck, and probably more privilege than luck, ended up in this position. And I want a child who sees their favorite video game or is building something in Roblox to understand that that can turn into a career but it only can if we can get through the skill gap that so many of those kids see. And you, and you hit it right on. It is STEM education. It's technology. I think we have a role to play, again, as an industry, even some of the creative games that we can build that can help inform and teach kids. But there's obviously a role for strict academics in kids
0: learning the skills that they need. Yeah, people talk about the BBC Acorn in the 1980s as the thing they learned to cut on. Now we have the Raspberry Pi, which that's right. You know, it was a conscious decision to kind of create an access level computer for kids to play with.
1: Yeah. And not to make it about Roblox, It's a part. they run on Xbox, it's not a studio that we own. And even the creative process of how do I build my own video game? Like, yeah. how do I, one, get the technology pieces together to actually put something on screen, but also make something that's fun that somebody will want to go play that either tells a story or creates challenge, you know, that's that's as much a part of the equation for us as well. And I love the fact that in Minecraft, individual consumers can create content that other consumers can buy. The consumer marketplace in in Minecraft is a huge, huge business for consumers selling content that they create to consumers, but ensuring as well that our studio staff has the diversity of backgrounds that we need that we talked about. But really that skilling pipeline is available and available to anybody who sees it as a career path for them.
0: That's uh fascinating. I want to go on you mentioned um you know how you can build something in Minecraft and sell it. I want to, I want to talk a bit about monetization of games in a minute, but I just want to slightly segue, you know, we've been talking about how do you teach people the skills that are needed for the to work in the games industry, but I wanted to slightly flip that on that head cuz I'd love to know your views on gaming's kind of wider remit an entertainment medium, yes, but it's also a way that kids can learn. Yeah, learn through gaming. And it's also a fantastic potential medium. Well, it is a potential medium in health healthcare. Yeah, and we,
1: going back to the kind of history of of gaming and, and my learning, we've kind of at the beginning we would retroactively learn about the impact of things that we would build. For those that remember back, I think around twenty ten or so, we had this thing that came out for Xbox three hundred and sixty called Connect. Yeah, and I you can remember. play without yes. the controller. Yes. And I remember we put this out, there were Kinect Sports, there were some dancing games, and it was really for people who look at a video game controller and say, okay, that thing's intimidating, but still want to play. And you are the controller. That was kind of our tagline. And I remember sitting there and getting a video from a parent whose autistic child was now playing games for the first time ever. Oh, wow. Because they didn't have to kind of myopically focus on this controller, yeah. But they could they could just stand up and play. We didn't plan that. Um, yeah. I don't even know if we did a good job for that mm. autistic child at the time. Mm. Um, but the fact that was really an eye opening moment for me, of the impact of something that's going to be a natural attractor for children because of it's what their friends are doing. It's shiny. It, like the music, and everything, and yet can have, a therapeutic. Purpose can have an educational purpose. We do a lot of work here in the UK with a group called Special Effects, yes. Which um, sometimes is a fantastic charity. It's an incredible charity, and we learn a lot from sitting down and watching players play, watching the the kind of limitations or challenges that people have, and how it applies to our art form. Yeah, and what we need to go do, and the educational element, while different, is an adjacency to that of. How I learn about different cultures, different civilizations, even problem solving or group problem solving in a cooperative game, of how in you and I sitting with headsets on in different parts of the planet, saying, okay, we're gonna go solve this destiny strike together uh, and we're gonna go through that. Like the collaborative capability, which maybe is education at a lowercase e, but in terms of life skill, I think is is an important, important consideration. And I think there's more work in maybe the more capital E education yeah. in video games, kind of more formal. Kids many times can see through something that's more about maybe the education than the fun. So like we have to balance that. Uh, that's a
0: good point, that's an interesting point.
1: But Minecraft for us has been the best example because we have coding in Minecraft. And we have Minecraft Education, which is a specific SKU product, a version of Minecraft that we sell into the classrooms. And teachers can then build curriculum in Minecraft. And the kids are more naturally drawn to it because it's not a big paper textbook. It's actually Minecraft. But the learning can be as deep and as rich. And it's been incredibly successful. Uh, and I think the industry can do more of that.
0: I mean, I could talk to you. I mean, there's a guy, he's, we call him the godfather of games, Ian Livingston, who started Games Workshop in the late 70s, who's now set up a school in Bournemouth on the south coast of England to teach kids. His theme is, I want to use gaming uh, as an education medium. Yeah. And I could talk endlessly about it, but I want to, uh, you know, we're limited in time. I want to talk briefly about the monetization of video games because you've moved more to subscription, obviously. Yeah. So that's very interesting. And it kind of brings me back to the, you know, we only talk about Netflix and we don't talk about Xbox, as it were. And also, we've had a controversy in the UK about loot boxes. So yeah. I'd love to hear your kind of thoughts on loot boxes. For what it's worth, I am i don't regard loot boxes as a form of gambling. And the, government, the UK government, in effect, has said the same thing yeah. this month. But I'd love to know, first of all, how subscription is changing the kind of games industry f- from your perspective. And then some thoughts on Loot boxes Yeah, I,
1: I very much view business model as part of the seed of creativity. That you know, if you and I, I'll use video, I'll use television because more people understand it. If we were going to go create a, a video production, if it was going to be a 90-minute show in the cinema versus a 30-minute sitcom on television, we need to know that as part of the creative process, because actually what we would build would be different, our aspiration would be different. And it's not that one's better than the other. You actually want both movies at cinema and television on the screen. So as an industry, I, I think historically, we've been too monolithic in business models that we support. If I go back to my childhood, I was going into the store and I was buying a cartridge to go plug in my Atari 2600. So the only model for me to play games was retail, if even rewind further, was about me putting quarters on an arcade machine yeah, course, at the yeah. arcade, and that was the only business model that we had. Which meant the creative that you saw on an arcade was all about how do I get somebody to play for five minutes and then put another quarter in. Or in a cartridge, it was about how do I give you enough value so that you're happy and you'll go buy another cartridge of my next game or somebody else's next game. And as a platform, and you talked about the diversity of devices that we support from phones to televisions to people playing on laptops and PCs and tablets and everything else, that business model diversity should lead to more creative diversity in the products. Because as a creator, if I say I want to build something that's more episodic, or if I want to build something that's more standalone and end-to-end with a beginning, middle, and end, I've got a business model around that. If I wanna build something that's more service-based where I'm looking to attract 50 million players and it's all gonna be free in the beginning and I have like a post-sale monetization model, that should work for me as well. I think that diversity of business models for us as a platform is critical to us continue to bring more creative content to the platform and it's, it should never be driven by one business model. Subscription, Game Pass is our subscriptions. there's others out there, PlayStation Plus is one, Apple Arcade is one. Um, there are multiple content subscriptions. It's been an interesting journey. It's basically only three years old for us, so yeah. much obviously much more recent than retail and even free to play. And we're watching how it impacts creators. Uh, I did a roundtable we talked about earlier here, and I got a lot of feedback on the positives of Game Pass, and still people having question have questions about is it really sustainable the model? Does it devalue content? You know, real questions that I understand, and I love the the dialogue with creators. What it's done for us on our platform is led to more creative games mm-hmm. that if retail was their only outlet might not have been greenlit because yep. is somebody actually going to pay $30 for this thing? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now that we can kind of take that off the table, we can even fund part of the development or all of the development because we've got a sustainable revenue stream from the subscription so we can go do development deals to bring that content into the subscription and players are much more likely to try something outside of their core if the marginal cost is downloading the next game right yeah, exactly. it's not a, a, a it's not a, a exactly. fee and they're streaming to their consoles now so they they don't even have to download like literally you can just click on the game and, and start playing and I love that. Like, I think we want more different people playing more different games is only a healthy thing for our industry. And that's the impact that it's had to date. But we also are three years into this and we're constantly learning. Tentosh loot boxes. Ah. <laughs> I mean, I will take the concern about loot box, I will, the questions about loot box, I will applaud. Because I do want us to be thoughtful as an industry on how we monetize. I think that's important. We've seen exploitive business models. I mean, watch what's kind of going on in NFTs. And the technology itself is somewhat inert, right? I I believe that Mm. it's the use of a technology that kind of puts it in the, is it constructive or is it evil? And I think sometimes you have to ask the questions of, how am I using this mechanic or this technology? I agree with you on loot boxes. We don't use loot boxes in most of our first-party work. It's not something that we choose to do, but we have a lot of partners that do on the platform. And I don't see it as a form of gambling. But as a platform holder, we want fair and transparent transactions for our players. And we want to ensure that our partners are kind of stating the odds, if that's the right model, so that people know when they are trying or they're, they're buying something that where the outcome isn't predetermined, that they understand at least the likelihood of what they're going to see is is part of that transaction. And I think that's important.
0: Actually, that's a good segue to one issue I want to discuss is uh, your policy towards player safety, because that's the other area where video games kind of impact public policy is obviously politicians stroke parents are terrified of adults approaching kids in games and so on and uh, bullying and that kind of thing. How on earth do you police that? And we've got a big online safety bill, you're probably aware, is about regulation of platforms. Well, I'll I'll say first, we invest
1: a lot in policy and enforcement, both on technology, machine learning, AI-driven routines that can detect when a conversation is happening on our platform that isn't in line with our principles or or, our desired outcomes of conversation. It's not that we're listening. It's actually the AI routines will start to block or warn certain conversations they're happening. There's a human component to policy and enforcement that will be there, I think, forevermore of people ensuring that the content that shows up on the platform is what we think it should be. We scan images, we've got AI techniques that can look at images and find images that are inappropriate. And this is constant. Like, it, this is not, I, I don't think there's ever a success or a destination because it's kind of a constant battle against people trying to do harm, and and our desire as a platform to create a safe place. If I could say anything to the audience listening, if you have children that play, please, please, please set up a child account for your, 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 your child who's playing. A child account allows, and all the platforms have child accounts. Different ones have different capabilities. I'll talk about Xbox, but not as a, I'm not trying to sell you an Xbox, just... There's a mobile app you can go where you'll see exactly what your child does. You approve every friend that has any online conversation with your child. You can set time limits on how how long the box will work every day, and then the console will turn off. Spending limits are in the app. You see the activity that happens. And much like I don't think a parent would leave their six-year-old at home alone and just kind of walk out. Like, don't just put them on a console. Don't set up the parent's account with a credit card attached and just give it to the kid to take into their room and not pay attention. And I, don't, I think this is true of being on Facebook, of being on TikTok, of being on, you know, on YouTube. Pay attention to what your kids are doing online in any social situation and use the tools that we have. And the parental controls are, are incredibly important. We take our role there very, very seriously. And at some level, we productize it. Like we sell these features to third parties as well. We try. It's not about our platform differentiation. Because I think in many ways, and and you're hitting on this, video games will get painted through one brush, right? It won't be, oh, the Xbox is safer than another platform. We don't see that as a good outcome. We want video games to be perceived as they are. Are video games safe? I think the platform holders that are out there are investing in the right capabilities if the parents are setting up the right accounts, do a good job, still pay attention to your child anytime they're online, whether it's video games or not, uh, because it's basically them walking down a public street alone. Are you leaning into government regulation on this? I mean, as I mentioned, the online safety bill. I think government regulation is important. In this, I mean, protecting the population is, I think, one of the primary roles of government. And I, I think the interaction, and I, I, I like the interaction that we have with our government partners in this, as we think about the opportunity. And as I said, if I think about it as a medium of video games and wanting to get a place to where the population feels that it's a safe place for their child to play, I think we have to, we have to do that in partnership with the public sector, right? It just. It's critically
0: important. So final big question, as we kind of melt in this room, is... um, It is the surface of the sun in London this week. (laughs) uh, It's that unbelievably dull and predictable question, which is kind of what are we going to be doing in games in 10 years' time, VR, metaverse, what is the direction of travel? I mean, funny enough, when you're talking about education, I thought about, you know, I think virtual reality in education is a potentially incredibly engaging medium. I mean... Are you going to be sitting in an Xbox room at home with a VR headset? Are you going to be playing your games in the metaverse? What's it going to look like?
1: I don't know that my answer is going to thrill you on this one. Um, (laughs) What I believe is going to happen, and we've seen this in video, is the barrier between creator and consumer will continue to get more blurry.
0: Oh, that's interesting.
1: And like, if you take something like TikTok. Yeah. Right, TikTok has- That is the creative
0: economy, yeah. This it is totally is. Yeah. And
1: you have YouTube stars and TikTok stars who, in their own living room, have created more following and more business opportunity for them than some of the biggest Hollywood stars in the market through their own creative capability. And I love that. I love the fact- It's nothing against Hollywood stars, but I love the fact that it becomes not about five game publishers controlling all access to games or- seven Hollywood movie studios that are any all of the access to the big screen, which is where stars are made, or, or 10 record labels that dictated what records got put on the shelf. And in video games, I think because of some of the complexity in creating games, we're a little behind the yeah, curve yeah. just in the evolution. But we see it today that games that include a creative outlet where the creations can then re- be shared and even in certain cases monetized blurs that whole model. Yes, that'll be true in the metaverse as well. But I Mm. actually think for the thing I get really, really excited about are the games that I see coming from creators who have never built a game before. And they're sitting right next to a game that might have a $200 million development budget. But on our platform, they're just two games sitting side by side in a list. And they can do that. They do. They can do that. You and I, could go build a video game for Xbox and never meet anybody from Xbox. We could use no our retail way. kit that we buy at Curry's here, wow. go take it home and build and deploy to the store. Us as a platform are gonna ensure that there, it's not an evil game, that it's a rated game, like there's some stuff we have to do there, but, and, and go deploy. And that's if you and I know how to build a game, but I love the fact that as you talked about the creator economy, you see it playing more and more of a role. And I think this line between who are creators and, and who are consumers is going to get more
0: and I more I think blurry. that's a good answer, Phil thank you. Spencer, thank you, king of Xbox. Uh, I've never done a quick fire round in my podcast, and you're going to be the guinea pig. I'm going to ask you two general ones. that I'm going to ask other people when I do a podcast with them, and I'll ask you two specific. What was the worst moment in your career? <laughs> is there a moment when you thought, oh, my God, it's all going down the... This
1: is a hard one, but I, I don't mind bringing it up, that... There's a show in San Francisco called The Game Developers Conference yes. GDC. Um, and there was a GDC seven, six, seven years ago where the Xbox team put on a party. And the hostess at the party were dressed in an inappropriate way. And I can go through all the... We'd hired an outside agency like all this. But in the end, it was us. Yeah. Um, I wasn't there. I was at... A Microsoft executive briefing up in, in Redmond, but I started to see kind of the reports of this. And, you know, it was an, an angry time, it was an embarrassing time. The learning from that as an organization, it was coming back to Redmond, we were all, when we were still in the office, getting back together and watching how the team responded was inspiring. The moment was incredibly embarrassing and, but the team took it as a moment to say, this won't define us, and we will come through this better. It's where Gaming for Everyone, which I talked about early, actually came from. Oh, cool. And you know, I, I think about where I am today, where we are today as a team, and the things that we stand for, and what we look like as a team, and the discussions that we have. And I don't think we could be the team we are today without learnings like the GDC Dance Party and other moments in our history. So I'm not a big regrets person. I kind of the the shared kind of combined lived experience of all the good and the bad of the things that have happened make us who we are today. But in terms of a moment that I look back on in my career, it's like that was a hard moment. That was a very hard moment.
0: What is your kind of thing that you kind of remember most fondly about your career, the biggest triumph? I'm not saying oh. You know, I built this incredible game that sold more retail. You know, what do you personally feel was a moment when you thought, that is just, I'm so proud of that. Take a couple of hours to think. No, that. no. I, well, <laughs> I don't know the answer will be the
1: best answer. The moments that resonate, we do this this show in Los Angeles every June called E3. And when I first took this job, we, it's a live show. We got 1,000 people, two, 3,000 people in the audience. And just walking out and feeling the passion of the fans who love Xbox, love it, and the games that are on the platform and their passion. And it was E3 of 20, so I, and we, I do this every year and the team comes out. E3 2019, my daughters were in the audience for the first time, and my daughters are now in their mid-20s. But, and the production crew had actually set it up, so one of the shots was from me out, out in the audience doing talking into a camera. But they were right there. And for me, that connection of my family and the thing that I love to do, which is in this video game industry, was was a pretty special moment.
0: Okay, two Phil specific questions. Favorite game?
1: So my favorite game is a game called Voodoo Vince, which oh, nobody will you're gonna, have heard. I
0: thought you were gonna say that all my children.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Voodoo Vince is the first game, was on the original Xbox where my daughters and I finished together. And my oh, cool. three-year-old, I believe Livy was three, sitting on my lap with a controller that wasn't actually plugged in, but she was controlling something on screen. And my probably five- or six-year-old, Sydney, sitting next to me. And we would pass the controller back and forth as each one would fail in trying to solve letters, levels. But uh, Voodoo Vince was the first game we ever, I ever finished with my two daughters.
0: Favorite Microsoft chief executive? <laughs> <laughs> How's he going to get out of this one? Can this man run for office? If he can answer this question appropriately, he could be the senator for Seattle, for Washington. Having
1: known, I I know Bill, I know Steve and Satya. Here's what I would, this, this will sound like a political answer. I honestly believe every one of those CEOs was right place, right time for the company. And in the role that, so I'll focus on Satya for a second, who is my boss, the role that a corporation plays in the lives of the employees now, where people see where they work as part of their representation of them, Yeah. yeah. what my company stands for should matter in terms of what I stand for. I mean, you go back 100 years, you worked for the man, and you just couldn't wait for the whistle to blow, and you went home, and it was this yeah, antagonistic yeah. relationship. And now I want to show up at a place that I think represents my values. And I think Satya is the right CEO for this company at this point. I don't think he was, would have been the right for when Bill was there in founding this company and kind of all that we were doing. And Steve Ballmer in the middle in terms of scaling us from this kind of startup to a company that is, is kind of at the scale it's at today, I think was the right CEO in the middle. But I do very much value how Satya has embraced what does it mean to culturally run an organization? And that's become, I think, a real power of his. And I love how he embraces it.
0: Good answer, King of Xbox. <laughs> and thanks for looking after my son, Daycare, eight <laughs> hours a day, seven days a week. Set up parental controls for it's him. It's a great pleasure to meet you. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks for the time. <laughs> thanks for listening to this episode of The Phasey View, a production of Kindred Media.